0: so the mute button's on the lower right. You're probably familiar with that, I suspect. All right. Hey. Does it work now? It is, man. You're on. All right.
1: Thank you. Okay. Yeah. No, that was like just something where uh, app. Uh, no offense to our uh, the call-in hosts, they're just supposed to loading, so I just get in their phone. Um,
0: all right. Well, they Let's they, do it. they they, they, they ping me. They're they're actually in the room, by the way. So just to make it even more awkward. And apparently they, they sick support on the case. So um, hopefully next time it won't happen, but here we are. Thank you for joining us. I know, I know it's a weird hour where you are and we have to move things around a little bit, but, uh, and then I know that this has also been a very busy week. Cause I, as I was announcing to, to fill airtime before you showed up, uh, this is the big week. Your, your book finally launched on July 4th.
1: Uh, that's right. And uh, you know, I need to actually tweet about it. We're basically just, I, I wanted to make some small edits to the website and so on. And we're going to be, uh, you know, tweet that out but basically um in a sense this is kind of the cumulative result of a lot of thinking since you've known me right you know um, right. like at least 10 years of thinking and uh, but i also also think of it as, a, as just a b1 um do, should i talk about like the meta
0: the book app thing and then get into the thing you know yeah i think it's a good place to start because i think you know, this is a book kind of a name only. You actually do some interesting stuff with it. And yeah, please get into the, the sort of meta side of how, how you publish the book.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um you know, normally a book is static and an app is dynamic and never the twain shell meet, right? Uh You know, the book is supposed to be locked and done. And, you know, then you can complicate that because obviously you've got second editions and... Uh, you know, third edition, especially for like math textbooks or, or physics textbooks, stuff like that. But um, typically, a book is meant to be static and an app is more dynamic. And uh, I think, you know, what, we're, what I'm trying to do here is, um, is first of all, we've released the whole thing at, uh, you can go to the networkstate.com and um, also septictron.com, but we'll probably move it over. Uh, you can go to the networkstate.com and the whole thing is online for free. We built like an ebook reader. Um, you can click and just look at the PDF on any device. And of course you can get it on Kindle. And so this way, you know, if you're on a low bandwidth, um, you know, Android phone in India or Nigeria or South America or something like that, you can look at it. But if you want to look at it on a nice Kindle and, uh, you know, fancy city, you can do that too. And just kind of optimizing for reach as opposed to sales per se. Right. Um, because I, you know, I don't, I don't need to sell a lot of copies. Uh, What I want to do is just try to get some of the concepts out there. If it helps like, you know, one person think through, you know, start societies and so on, that's, that's kind of my goal. Um, And one other thing about the book app thing is obviously, you know, so I mean to keep pushing updates, Uh, you know, I may tweet out like a new, uh, I shouldn't quite say a chapter a week or something like that, but definitely like new sections and and things like that. And uh, you know, maybe by the end of it, when I add in every, uh, argument and counter-argument and counter-counter-argument and footnote and footnote to the footnote and appendice and whatever. All these graphs and charts, there's so much stuff that this is this is very much the leanest cut that I could get out there. There's so much stuff I want to get out there. And, uh, you know, maybe it'll double in size by the end of it. And then then we will hit print. Then we'll generate a hardcover and an audible and whatnot and have that out there. But think of this as the V1, uh, almost like the early preview. And uh, there's more to come. Okay, let me stop there.
0: Yeah, well, so the the lean cut is 460 pages, polish, yeah, I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad, and you know, you and I have talked about book book launch strategy, which of course you all completely ignored. Um, but that that's that's fine. But it's good that the the hardback and the Audible is coming because I'm sure you know the d- the digital sales are are bigger in in Audible than Kindle. Like Kindle is like how nerds read, but. It, like Kindle sales have actually kind of plateaued broadly, but but it's yeah. good that the rest is coming. Did you, so, are you out of curiosity? Are you printing it yourself? Did you actually buckle and go with a conventional publisher or no? Bologies, no, no, no. So yeah, everything, everything full. Set. Here's the thing. So, it's, I learned a lot while doing this,
1: basically. Right. And you know, maybe there's some book publisher online who will just get really mad at what I'm going to say or whatever. Okay, fine. Uh, but you know, so first of all, I had the time and the resources to just publish everything myself. And so what that meant is, I didn't, you know, Amazon allows you to self-serve. And what the funny thing is is Amazon is sort of my non-conventionality in the sense that an Amazon listing shows it as a book, right? If you just have a website, it's not a book. If you have an Amazon listing, it's like a book, okay? So it's actually like kind of funny that in the digital era, that artifact is kind of sort of what makes it like real seeming because you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to get a listing set up, right? Um you know, like an incorporated vehicle, and blah blah blah, all this stuff, and so the Amazon listing is almost like my nod to conventionality. As I said, we'll have an audible, and we'll have a hardcover, and you know, in addition to the the Kindle edition. But the thing about a book publisher is, it means that every single derivative work you make, if images, updates, video. Anything you get approval from somebody else. And they'll edit your stuff, they will tone it back. And nowadays, actually, I'm sure you've followed book publishing, you know, being an author, you know, yourself. Um nowadays uh there's there's quite a lot of political constraint on what people can publish. If you're you know, if you see the young adult stuff and you know, so on the the, the drama that's happening in some of these sectors, uh it, it is difficult to get even re- moderately controversial books out there. So the thing is becoming bipolar and just like Substack kind of going direct became a thing for individual writers. Um, You know, we do want to like potentially open source this whole thing that we've built for individual authors to just kind of go direct to Amazon. The the missing component of that, of course, would be monetization. Um, You know, I've got some concepts on that, but let me pause there. Get your thoughts.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, when you sell the book, I mean, you literally do sell the book. Like, I, I don't own the IP for Chaos Monkeys anymore. It's like somebody else's, right? And it just goes right. off into the wild. And it's, I mean, a slightly better analogy might be, like, the venture capital model is actually not a terrible model for it, in that the author is the entrepreneur, and you've got VCs who take, their liquidation preferences are a lot stronger than, <laughs> than most VC term sheets. But, they, but it also de-risks the author in the sense that they get paid up front, and then a fraction on the back end, and you know, depending on the author and the genre, it, it can make sense. But again, if, if your goal is not necessarily monetization, but it's, you know, it's, it's, policy. It's 400 years from now, there's going to be a network state society and you will be the guru founder, kind of like the founding fathers are to us. If that is your goal, then potentially the route you chose is, is a better way to actually do that.
1: Well, I uh, you know, I, I, I think my, uh, I'm not sure if it'll be 400 years from now. Hopefully we can do it within our lifetime, but, I, and, and it's, as a, like the thing is it's funny to put it that way like I would I I that's where we're putting this um you know how sometimes there's a comment uh you know there's a post on the internet and it's wrong and uh you know there's the famous XKCD cartoon on this like somebody's yep. wrong on the internet and it's not that you like want to take Time to go and do it it's just that you kind of feel oh man no one's gonna no one's gonna say anything no one, no one's gonna ah, it, it falls to me right? I must say something right, and that's sort of how I think about it in the sense that uh you know i I, I kind of wish that all this stuff was being taken care of by other people and I could just like relax and do math or something and uh so it's not like I kind of want to be oh this group not not like that at all actually i look at it as kind of like okay um there's certain things i think of as kind of obvious and there's some things i think of as maybe not obvious uh in terms of how like we should we should operate a society and maybe i'm totally wrong you know and uh and so we'll, we'll see about that but but i do think that simply assuming someone else is going to fix it is really the fundamental problem i mean you know for example i talked to some of my you know tech ceo friends or you know, folks who like run out large organizations and, and, you know, they're in the details on their organization. You know, they, if, if need be, they can hit a button and be like, okay, what did so-and-so sell in Wisconsin last quarter, right? What, what is the quarterly report on the, you know, price of X in, you know, the EMEA uh, region, you know, European Middle East region, they're in the details on everything and they don't necessarily need to get into the details on every single thing, but if they want to, they can. And, then the difference with that versus, you know, how they sort of think about the government or the establishment of the U S and whatnot is so night and day, they, they kind of have a, Oh yeah, someone will figure it out. Oh yeah, no, it's always, someone's always figured it out. It's always, it's always worked. It'll continue to work. Hey, you know, some historical analogy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, you know, in, in, um, in tech, we don't assume that something is just going to reform itself Indeed, you know that you have to be the change that you want to see. And, uh, you know, that's actually the same. One of the things I talk about in the book is the market for revolutionaries. There's actually a very similar dynamic on the political activist side where, you know, on the on the on the tech side, you have the tech founder and they have the VC, as you're you just discussing on the on the political side, you have the political activist and you have the philanthropist. Right. And and there's a whole thing like, you know, Oslo Freedom Forum and there's a, there's, a, there's an entire community just like. YCE and, and whatnot on the activist side where people are, you know, scrambling, angling for funds for their nonprofits, uh, you know, and there's a, there's sort of a through line, which is not the network, but the state where, you know, the Internet is sort of the assumed background of everything that people are doing in technology. And of course, you're going to have a website and of course, you can do X and do Y. And with political activism, the state is the assumed background, the through line, where of course, you're going to eventually push for you know, changing some law uh, or, you know, getting some some regulation passed and so on and so forth. And which part of this giant tree trunk are you editing, you know? And they're like the startup arm of the government where they're trying to go and push some change of some kind. Sometimes that's done in a seemingly adversarial way, like
0: suing the EPA, for example. Are you familiar with this, you what I'm talking about? Um, suing the EPA? No, I'm not familiar with suing the EPA. Apologies.
1: Well, so like the EPA will like, have it will teach nonprofit groups how to sue the EPA. Why? Because those nonprofit groups, if they sue the EPA, then it will throw Br'er Rabbit into the Briar patch. It will go to a court and <laughs> court...
0: Sorry I just I love the Br'er Rabbit reference. That's 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 that just came out of nowhere. But go sorry go ahead, Baloge Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So it will it will essentially be like um it's a way to uh quote co- force the EPA to do something that many of the people within EPA actually want to do. And so they will engineer these lawsuits against it being, you know, saying like, you know, EPA is violating its duty to not to 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 not clean up these wetlands and and stop the evil corporations nearby lawsuit. Right. And they'll train the activists in how to do this. And then the judgment will come down saying EPA must do this, and EPA will then have something that it can use to point to the various folks who say it shouldn't have so much power, and be like, ha ha, see? Uh, or, or rather, well, we must do this. You know, it's a, it's a court that has given us this authority. We're forced to do it. So then their tendril extends again, right? And if you think about this, it's like bizarre. You know, if you think about that from the outside, you know, why would why would an agency tell somebody to sue it? But the reason is, first of all, those. Folks at EPA are not like corporate executives and or tech executives because they have an infinite budget, right, for the most part. I should say infinite. Right. Obviously, they have to go to a renewal every year. Um, there's a budget renewal process. That is the whole thing. They won't necessarily get every dollar they want to. But otherwise, they're like a tank, right? They don't have to make money. They're just given gigantic amounts of, you know, taxpayer or, you know, Federal Reserve printed cash. The individual people there can't get fired or, you know, um, They can't get voted out. They're anonymous. Even the agency is reported on as EPA or FDA or whatever. Uh, By the way, the omission of the um, preposition, uh, you know, like the is conventional in, you know, in in, in the D.C. area. Uh, You know, like an insider doesn't say the FDA. They say FDA has said this. FDA has said that. You know, it's kind of you know how Apple will actually say iPhone without the the uh yeah well i mean cia doesn't have an article either right but yeah um right right exactly exactly so so it's just something where it depends on the context but the insiders typically say it without the, the anyway
0: i mean the, the joke is that you know you don't use the in front of, in front of cia because you don't use the in front of god but you yeah, know that's the joke from the good shepherd with matt Damon. um <laughs> yeah hold on so i want to pause you there for a second before we go on a total apology tear because we do try to limit this to, to roughly an hour i, I do want to pull a tyler cohen on you and jump to what I think is the meat of the matter with like almost zero preface. And then I'm happy to revisit. So your, your book is structured in an interesting way in that there, there's a lot of biology sort of geopolitical philosophy at the beginning, God, state network, CCP, New York times, crypto, et cetera, which I think people who followed you are probably somewhat familiar with, although you, you know, you state it much more sort of concisely and definitively here. I, I to me, the, to, to be honest, the most interesting chapters and I thought the most interesting concept in your book, just to editorialize for a second is sure. is is the titular concept of the book, which is the network state right and the, and the reason why that's interesting like I share with you uh, concerns. And doubts about the viability of the nation-state. I've often said, and I think here we've talked about this before, and I think we agree, right? But like, I think in my opinion, one of the biggest things, things that's happened in the past two to three hundred years, if, you're, if you were to tell me to point at something that's underrated, again, another Cowanism, that was important in history, it's the decoupling from how you know, matter and information move from bits and atoms, right? Like, and it, it's funny because originally it was like telegraph lines strung along railroads. And so the atoms and the bits, and even now, if you look at the way undersea internet cables go, it tends to follow shipping lanes as kind of a legacy thing. But, but broadly speaking, information and, and material matter now flow in completely different ways, which means that, and I think th- this is the basis of your network state thesis, right? You know, the my personal headspace, my worldview, who I consider my friends, my values, what I consume... Are completely unrelated to the sort of geographic colored square on the map that follows the contours of a political entity, a language barrier, etc. Which is traditionally yes. how human society kind of evolved, even post printing yep. press, right? And if you and if you decouple. The physical, right? Like, if what I think and do and believe and who I talk to has nothing to do with the fact that I happen to be in, in the city of San Francisco in the state of California in the United States of America, then kind of all bets are off, right? And I think to me, like, the, bi- the big fucking glitch-, glitch in the Matrix, among the, the many that the internet has driven, is providing that glitch, right? Like, I'm, I'm I'm literally staring at the network state diagram that you've got, which, by the way, you drop a lot of interesting numerical Easter eggs in it 1729, yeah. 314, as population, etc. <laughs> I noticed this, sure, but so, and th- and so. And and the other thing I'll I'll set up as a preface, and you get into it a little bit in your book, and and you actually, you know, drop some of the references, again, a lot of good links in your book. Um, You know, this notion might seem radical, because of course, the nation states, to us, right, people of our age who have lived in this century, seems like just almost a law of physics, right? It it is the case that you have states that are of roughly some level of ethnic homogeneity, in the case of the United States, not very much. Um, But there is some creedal nation wrapped around it and a bureaucratic state sitting on top of it, right? And that's the way humans, at least in most of the West, have organized themselves since, you know, for the past three to four hundred years, post printing press, uh, post post Napoleon, post thirty thirty years war. Right. And there, and if you but in fact, those were actually invented, right? Like I often joke that like Italy and Germany are younger than the state of Florida. Right. State of yeah, Florida is actually incorporated exactly. before Italy and Germany exactly. were actually unified. And and that and that was a result of what Benedict Anderson, who I don't think you quote directly, but you're definitely quoting in spirit because a lot of your thinking is oh, I, I think clearly I from. I, I quote, yeah. Benedict
1: Anderson, the Imagine Communities oh, okay. guy.
0: Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Imagine, Imagine Communities, Country, um, which is, is, is a great book, by the way, I think, by Benedict Anderson, gets into a lot about how print capitalism, meaning the sort of yes. media capitalism that happened post-printing press actually homogenized these nations, right? They had to pick a German standard, which happened to be Martin Luther's translation of the Bible and Goethe. Or in the case of Italy, Petrarch and Dante, as like, oh, this is now Italian. Even in Spain, right? One of my home countries, right? Like in much of Latin America, Spanish, what Americans call Spanish is still called Castellano, Castilian, because it's the language from one region of Spain. <laughs> and my, my grandparents didn't speak Spanish. Actually, they spoke Galician. And so they spoke Spanish with an accent, and the, which they had to learn later when they came to Cuba. And so like a lot of these notions of nation states that we think, oh, France has been around forever. That's not true. France, as we know it today, was as invented as anything else. And we still see states being invented like, you know, Israel or, or Ukraine to a certain extent. And so I, what I find interesting is that I think that the nation state is dying. And, and the principal evidence I usually show is, well, th- there aren't any more being born anymore. Right? Like there, there aren't new nation states that you see. And for a while, particularly post Cold War, there was like dozens of states, like the United Nations used to be cool. sub 100. Now it's almost 200 nations, right? A lot of nations have been created, but not, not in the recent past, right? And so it seems pretty clear that there's a major challenge in actually rallying people around an idea. One of the joke tweets I said is like all these charter nations, they're like Zionism without Judaism, right? <laughs> there's this notion of trying to recreate, you know, trying to create a new nation based around some feeling of identity, but somehow there isn't the 2000 years of exile and the holy book and the ethnicity <laughs> behind it. Um, Yep. so I'll, I'll I'll stop there but that, that's anyhow hopefully I've, I think I've framed the problem in a very similar way that you framed it but at the end of the day, your answer to all this is the network state and um yeah, I'll, I'll stop there sure so so a
1: few things first is um one of the things that I'm actually doing in my kind of edit of the book now you know is uh reframing it as um you know, said so like this kind of quick start intro and then Chapters two, three, and four, I can almost think of as, you know, this problem, and then chapter five, solution, right? So, uh, you know, you, you kind of have some theory of the world of why things are breaking, et cetera, and then solution, startup societies and network states, figure out how we can legalize this to take, you know, allow people to take things into their own hands, communities to take things into their own hands and build their own societies and potentially eventually get diplomatic recognition. And I actually identified that, by the way, as the key characteristic of a network state is diplomatic recognition. You might say, and I can talk about why I think that's so key. And it's also very un ish because libertarians are like, why would I need something like that from all these, you know, old school people and, you know, what have you. But it's sort of like the crypto fiat interface, having some degree of pragmatism. Um, there's, there's a bunch of things that states have, and perhaps the most important is once you have diplomatic recognition from one pre-existing state, it's almost like a non-binding commitment to not invade and then you can usually get it from other states and so on and so forth. And now you have to a greater degree, like secured your legitimacy, right? Like you're now in the club, so to speak. Over time, I think, you know, the number of network states might match or then eventually exceed the number of nation states, just like the number of cryptocurrencies has, you know, exceeded and eventually I think will become larger than yeah, I mean, but the, economy. but bridge between the way of thinking about it inclined jar agree with my entire problems meant to still be interested in startup societies and network states as i've defined them uh you also um you know may only agree with part of the problem and part of the solution um but think of it not as a like a bible actually but as a as like you know, Python or something where it, there's a main language and there's a bunch of toolboxes and this has got just a bunch of little tools, analytical lenses and, and things. And if you only use 10% or 20% or 40% or 60%, that's fine. Like, um you know, I, I, I I'm one of the things I say in the book, and I'm actually teasing out this, this revision is the stance that I come into it with is polytheistic, polystatistic, and polynumist, right? So polytheist, polystatist, polynumist, meaning I'm okay with multiple gods and multiple states and multiple networks. And so that's, you know, once you kind of articulate that, by the way, it actually puts you into conflict with those people who very much implicitly believe in one God or one state or one network or none. Right. And so, and they're offended that you would propose an alternative to the U S or to Bitcoin or to, you know, like their like religious belief or something like that. And, uh, whereas, if you're if you've got uh, a, a what do I call a pluralistic or polytheistic kind of orientation, it's good that there are alternatives. And in fact, that's kind of where you know I'm coming from in terms of the background of that. Now, with that said, it's good to have alternatives. But there's something else I do talk about in the book, which is very important, which is something that you actually hit on. And actually, I think I quoted, uh, I linked that tweet of yours. Um, Altman Sam Altman actually had a tweet also that I, I kind of laughed at, which was was um, also true, which is that if you don't have some sort of moral purpose for your organization, it will be overwhelmed by the current thing, right? Similar to your kind of thing on design is thing. And I just kind of saw that in the final stages when I was, you know, like finishing up things and I actually linked both of those. And the reason I think that's important is I have this whole section there on the one commandment. I'm not sure if you're able to see that. Do you see that section?
0: Uh, I'm looking at your book, but which, uh, which section are we talking it's 2. about? 9.
1: It's 2.9. It's 2.9. Yeah. So here's, here's essentially, let me kind of set it up. Basically the, And at first, it'll seem like weird, but then I'll try and explain it. The startup society, as I've defined it, starts with a moral innovation as opposed to a technological innovation like a startup company. And when you say a moral innovation, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, a startup company has uh, it has the tech part, but it's also got, you know, company culture. Once you go beyond, you know, just a few people, the culture of your company becomes an explicit thing. And it actually, you know, actually, you know, the uh the whole move fast and break things, I'll just take that famous example. Um the reason that got a lot of uh attention is because it was a non-obvious statement. That's to say, it expressed a trade-off that um you know people wouldn't make on their own. It inverted a principle perhaps that was implicit in broader society. It said to prioritize speed over stability. And then of course you know, like a million people use that against Facebook and whatever. And, you know, now they have like move, move fast with stable infra or some stupid thing that just takes away the interestingness of that initial yep. trade-off, right? Um, and, of course, it's also true that when you're at like billion-person scale, you can't have it crash for billions of people. You do need different values and what have you, right? Fine. Point being, though, that there was what I call a moral inversion by reference to Nietzsche. You know, Nietzsche talked about like the concept of the inversion of, morals
0: you right which which in Nietzsche's case is part of his anti-christian criticism in which yeah. victimhood is revered and every traditional society would worship the the beautiful the strong the rich and christianity inverted morality and actually in some sense worshiped the weak the infirm the poor and uh of course it drove Nietzsche completely crazy but yes yeah. it
1: did and so i've got like sort of a v3 on this which uh You know, is is neither Nietzschean nor anti-Nietzschean. So here's here's the V three, and I kind of talked about this, but sort of different way of talking about one part of the book. Basically, if you imagine the seven point whatever billion people, let's say seven billion people of the world, like seven point five, I don't remember the exact number, 7 uh, 7 billion people of the world, and they're rank ordered according to some metric. Okay, it could be the amount of U.S. dollars they have. It could be their ability to write a program. You know, if it was the Nazis, it'd be like how Aryan they are. If it was, uh, you know, like the books would be how marginalized they are um, or, you know, how, you know, how good they are at math. There's lots of different, you know, if it was uh, the, the Chinese people, you know, the CCP would be like how close to the Communist Party they are. And each of those are different rank order metrics that give you a different ranking on those 7 billion people. And you can sort of define a right wing ideology as something that uh, has a metric where it carves the top 100 million or 1 billion or 2 billion or whatever as the elite. Um, And it has some sort of theory as to why they, you know, should rule and why they're good and, you know, deserve to based on this ranking. And the left-wing ideology is everybody who's left on the other side of that is all the folks who are on the outside looking in who are not part of that ruling group, who are not close to the levers of power in the U.S. establishment, or, you know, who are not like the, 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 you know, they don't have the divine right of kings or something, right? And the thing is that when you kind of think of it this way, any order that is set up, any order of any kind, whether it's King Arthur in, in you know, the, the Middle Ages, or it's the Roman Empire, or it's the CCP, or it's the, you know, Soviet communist, or it's the U.S. establishment, has some ranking function like this, right? W- will you agree with me on that? Will you grant that premise
0: for now? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, look, the, the Christ story is the central moral narrative of the West. And, you know, in, in many ways, the the debate between traditionalist Christians and the woke is really just the casting in the movie. Right. Who's the Jesus yeah. figure and who's the tormenting Roman centurion? I've made this point to Rod Dreher, who I've interviewed ages ago for pull request, and he still didn't kind of see it. Right. But it, anyhow, I, I think, yes, a, a lot of yes, a lot of secular liberal wokeness is kind of regurgitated you know, Protestant Christianity and all the rest of it. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, every society, in yes. some sense, aspires so to some moral order. But yeah, yeah.
1: Here's the thing. One of the things I quote is basically like, um, you know, uh, Alinsky opens up rules for radicals in this intentionally provocative way where he's like, you know, Machiavelli wrote his book for the haves and, uh, you know, on how to retain power. Rules for radicals is for the have-nots and how to take it away, right? And what I have, I think, is a little chapter there, a contribution on the third part, which is, What happens when the have-nots gain power and become the haves? And then a new group of have-nots arises, right? That is actually the cycle where left becomes right and right becomes left. The revolutionary class becomes a ruling class and a new revolutionary class arises, not usually, by the way, the exact same group that was just defeated because the group that was just defeated was just defeated. And usually they, you know, whatever institution has just arisen is set up to defeat them. That's why I don't think it's going to be like a revival of traditional Christianity or traditional American, like wokeness is set up to deconstruct that. Like wokeness has a bunch of armaments that go after like traditional America and, you know, what have you. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's reacting on an axis that it's ideological rival had picked, you know, and, uh, Whereas, as I mentioned in the book, Bitcoin maximalism is actually set up to attack wokeness, and wokeness doesn't see that coming, and that's why I think Bitcoin maximalism—it's like the game of slaps. You ever play the game of slaps? No. It's like a thing in the East Coast where you know, growing up, you'd put out your hand, and the other guy would. Oh yeah. Slap yeah, yeah. On top.
0: I could refer to it that, but yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so in the game of slaps, you know, there's like. Uh, there's communism and then there's like the kind of American version of capitalism, you know, conservative America, the mid, you know, 20th century that, that rises to beat that. And then there's like wokeness that comes and beats Reagan's America. And then like comes maximalism, which I think is going to beat wokeness, but it's it's itself crazy. Um, and, And so on and so forth. You have this kind of thing where it's this game of slaps and people who are out of power fashion, a new revolutionary ideology that builds a different coalition and one way of thinking about it, you know, you're not saying, I mentioned this in the book also, but um, obviously you've heard buy low, sell high. And you've also heard, uh, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted.
0: That's Carl Swisher's personal mantra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, <laughs> it came from H. L. Mencken, but originally, but yeah. Well, well Swisher, is
1: Swisher, Swisher is like, you know, she's actually admitted she was like born as like the ch- scion of some wealthy family, like so many of these, you know, like wokes who just fabricate things for a living. Um, you know, she well, still hasn't retracted, by the way, this article on like, you know, how COVID was not going to be a big thing, you know, whatever. Anyway, useless. Kind of, they don't have distribution anymore, so it doesn't even matter. But basically, um, the, the those two sayings, right, like uh, buy low, sell high and comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, even though they have very different tones. I argue they're very similar in that the first one is financial arbitrage. And the second is political arbitrage. That is to say, you know, so the first one is totally obvious, right? You're buying low, selling high, you're finding an asset, a financial asset that's undervalued. You're helping it, you know, maybe you're adding value to it. You're you're you know, you're doing a turnaround as a PE or you're a VC and you're adding value, and then it's high, and then you sell high, right? Okay. Then but comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable is finding a group that has lower status or power than they should have. And helping them level up and then attacking those with higher status or power than they should have. And it's kind of like buy low, sell high, but on the political or status axis rather than the financial axis. Now, the reason that this is interesting is first, it's Russell conjugated in a totally different way. It's not framed as if there is gain for the comforter or the afflictor, right? Like this is posed as a totally moral act for that journalist or activist. Well, all I'm doing is comforting the afflicted and afflicting the criminal. Well, first of all, like the power to afflict somebody is itself power, right? So it is actually the guy who's doing the afflicting has enough power uh, and, uh, you know, enough to, you know, to quote, hold someone accountable means one must oneself have power, right? So that that once you put that lens on it, okay, this person is choosing or has the ability to kind of move this status around and subtract status points from this guy to afflict them and add status points to that guy to comfort them. So that person themselves has metapower, number one. And number two, this gives them a moral justification to use that power. Number three, it's like a form of like sort of status arbitrage, pushing this up and pulling this down. And number four, and what's interesting is the buy low sell high assumes that there's many different assets that you can buy, right? You can buy uh, this stock or this bond or whatever, the comfort of the afflicted, afflict the comfortable tacitly presupposes there's only one axis of power. But as I just described, it could be, you know, the powerful, it could be the CCP, they could be the Roman Empire, they could be the U.S. establishment, they could be the publishers of newspapers. There's different axes of power where some people are at the top on one axis and at the bottom on another. And then a big part of it is sort of what vector are people aligning towards? Are they talking about class? Are they talking about race? Are they talking about marginalization? Are they talking about money? Are they talking about, you know, like China's greatness or whatever? Like that vector that you can kind of align the conversation on is where a right-left axis arises and is where the political arbitrage begins. It's sort of like the the asset that we're trading today, you know, and uh, hold on. Sorry, just one second.
0: but just to interject for a second, you're drawing a parallel between... A financial arbitrage strategy and and basically the the message of the Gospels, which I think you're defining somewhat well, which is, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, that in some sense, a triumphant leftism has to constantly think that it's constantly in the revolution, right? I mean, you know, taking a very near at home example, the communist revolution in Cuba still felt that the revolution was ongoing, even though it was the most... Totalitarian police state you could possibly imagine that ruled with an iron fist, and yet still thought that it was rebelling against something, although it was kind of a joke. In the same way that much of, like, the woke American oligarchy thinks that it's kind of still a re- in, a, in a revolution against the establishment, but it, but it is the establishment. But that, but that's the that's the problem, right? That in in a in a society totally bought in to like the extreme Christian message, it, there's no moral valence outside of revering the victimhood figure, right? And even though all the traditional politics and you know, virtue signaling and sort of uh, uh, and political posing of of traditional society places itself plays itself out according to a different story. It still has to pretend that, in some sense, it, and, and and I think you're right to cite the hypocrisy of it, right? In some sense, and a Christian society, at least a modern Christian society, finds it difficult to justify action that's not in the name of again correcting some historical injustice, which is again, it's obviously a heretical form of Christianity and. Um there's, there's terms for it, antinomianism, et cetera, in, in, in traditional Christianity. But basically taking the, the, the message of the Gospels and effectively rejecting the Hebrew Bible. The God of the Hebrew Bible is a little bit more firm and follows the rules a little bit more. And it's not just about, you know, sticking your finger in the eye of authority as, as, as a political bent. Um, and so, yeah, I get it, but I, I don't see the parallel. I mean, the, the Bitcoin maximalism thing is just taking financial sociopathy and building like a society around the fact that it's you've got much more of money. than that I, I, so, Bitcoin,
1: well, well, hold on. There's two things, two, three things that let me just say something. So, first of all, I think you got basically what I was trying to say, which is that, uh, but you know, like the, the revolutionary class still wants to believe or makes out to believe it's still running the revolution, even as it's become the ruling class. One of the best ways of looking at this is, you know, what the PRI is in Mexico? Maybe you can tell that for your viewers. I um, don't know.
0: Yeah. yeah, um, It's the, it's literally the institutional revolutionary party, which has held power bingo. in Mexico for, I don't know, like a century now.
1: <laughs> Ex- yeah. Exactly. Right. So that itself has this paradoxical combination in the name, which is hilarious at first, but then you kind of, um, you know, one of the things I identify in the book are, you know, several left, right fusions where the left gives the moral or religious justification for wielding power and the right is the power itself. And you kind of need both. For example, like the Christian king, okay, left was Christianity, which tore down the Roman Empire, and it was supposedly against all hierarchies, and the money changers are thrown out of the temple, and the rich man goes through the eye of the needle, and it's you know against all kings. And, and then it becomes the ruling class ideology that justifies a Christian king. Or you have like the CCP entrepreneur, right, where it's like a communist capitalist, or you have... Um, the Republican conservative, actually, where the radical Republicans who, I have a whole section on this, the radical Republicans of 1865 somehow became the conservatives of mid-century America. And that dance is really worth understanding because essentially what happens is when the left wins, when the revolutionary class wins, it has moral authority and it uses that moral authority to gain economic authority. In the late 1800s, would you want a Confederate trader running your railroad company? No, of course not, right? And so what happened is that moral authority turns into economic authority. All of the Republicans become wealthy as a consequence. And then the Democrats started repositioning as the party of not the South, but of the poor. You can start to see this with William Jennings Bryan, 1896, cross of gold speech. It then extends with, um, you know, FDR is the big moment where like a 50-point swing from uh, of the black vote from, Uh, uh, Republicans, Democrats happens in the 1936 election, a second term. And actually the civil rights, you know, movement, that's only the mop up. It's like another 10 to 15 points, but the switch had actually been baked before. It's like a sine wave where it's like now moving up. And after 1965, the Democrats fully had moral authority after which over the next fifty years, they turned that into economic authority, because now just like you wouldn't have a Confederate trader running your railroad company, you would want a Republican bigot running your tech company, right? So so the, the, the thing would go, or your, you know, um, or academia or journalism or whatever. And now then by like twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, twenty twenty, if you look at the stats, it's something like 98% of journalists are Democrat and 90 something percent, 91%, I think of academics, I've got these stats in the book, 91% of academics are Democrat, and that probably understates it. And, you know, some enormous fraction, 98% of, of uh, donations from Twitter, 96% went to Democrats and so on and so forth. Right? So it's just total um, win on the economic axis, where this was a cycle, right? Moral authority leads to economic authority leads to loss of moral authority, leads to loss of economic authority. So the Republicans had the moral authority after the Civil War. They used it to gain money, economic authority. That led to a reposition against them. and They started losing moral authority. And then they lost that economic authority as well. And now they've become the party of the pearls. And so this cycle is this amazing 155-year cycle where the Democrats went from the defeated party in the Civil War to the totally triumphant you know, woke capitalists. And it's this huge sinusoidal arc. Now, as I mentioned in the book also, there's a ship of theseus aspect to this, you know, ship of theseus, it's this, uh, you know, metaphor or thought experiment where you have a ship and every single piece, uh, actually you want to, do you know about it? Should I describe it for your listeners?
0: Yeah, no, go, go ahead. It's, it's a slightly, it's a slightly obscure reference. So yeah, please go ahead. Sure. It's like, like imagine you had a, a ship and,
1: um, you go and replace the mast, and then you go and replace the prow and you replace a window and so on. And eventually you replace every single piece of that ship, right? Is it the same ship? when you've replaced every single piece, you know, and, you know, this is like this philosophical question and uh, you know, your body is like that as well. Like your, um, when you eat, you are what you eat. It's like, there's a internal process. that's manufacturing your, you know, your fingernails and your, and your eyes and, and all that stuff. Right. So the uh, the, the point here is that um, even though uh, like, you can say like that party had this 155 year arc, there's a, a Theseus aspect where the winning coalition actually looks a lot like the 1865 coalition, which is, um, Northeastern, mostly white people on the, in the name of minorities against like, you know, hated southerners. We have a weird thing with part 65 in some ways. Right. Um, but, but the, but the party names have changed and certain positions have changed and so on. And when you take the long lens, uh, because most people, it's uh, you know the term, term flatland or the concept of flatland
0: yeah yeah mm-hmm. yep right so flatland By the way, so just a, just as a comment on your book so just just one side comment for those who are, are trying to follow along um <laughs> i mean you you're, you're sort of like toolbox of signifiers is so rich and vast uh, i'm glad that you actually include a lot of links in the book because i think i probably get 80 percent of the references but I think we we often hover in the same intellectual circles, so the the overlap is pretty high. But I think for most, for a lot of people, they're going to have I think trouble keeping up with with biology. But it's good that you have a lot of interesting links in there, and I think if you literally just clicked on every link and read everything, you, you'd come out with like close to an equivalent of like a bachelor's degree because <laughs> you have you have a lot of references in the book.
1: Yes, I, I there's thousands and thousands of uh, there's, there's only over there two thousand links in the book I think, but the reason I include that is just because. It's almost like including a submodule, you know, Uh, Now you might say, well, that's bad to include lots of references. And that's true, but it's also something where it allows you to build a more complicated argument rather than, you know, like doing it from scratch. You can be like, okay, this guy had this really good concept. I'm just going to import that and using that let's use it. Right. Okay. So like flatland, right. Flatland is this parable where you imagine somebody who lives in two dimensions. And then when they encounter a sphere, which is a three dimensional thing, you know, it looks at first like a small circle rising up out of the ground, you know, not rising up because you don't have the concept of up and down, but it's a small circle that then expands and then it contracts and they're just trying to project this three-dimensional thing down into two dimensions, this mysterious thing. And so flatland is thought of as this two-dimensional plane and it's a great metaphor, you know, these things that are beyond our in three dimensions. But I give a different version of flatland and a different version of flatland is flat not in the sense of two-dimensional, but flat in the sense of zero-derivative. Zero derivative is, you know, you're on a curve, but, you know, it's instantaneously flat or it's flat for some period. And it doesn't seem like things are changing. And that, in my view, is kind of people in the 90s and the 2000s and so on. It's almost like at the peak of a roller coaster or at the crest of a sine wave, one takes that temporary stability for permanency. You live in flatland. And so therefore, people are not accustomed to the you know, derivative, the change that is um, frequent in other periods and that we're going through and that I think is going to accelerate. They kind of think as they start coming off that sine curve, oh, look, it was flat for a long time, but actually the derivative is going to increase and you know, the second derivative is, is like increasing and until you have like this vertical kind of thing and then we have to have a plan for like stability on the other side. That's kind of my my metaphor for folks who think, um, you know, like, oh, the post-war order will hang on. Actually, Collison had a good tweet. Patrick Collison had a good tweet on this just, I think, a day ago or so, where he showed one graph that I'd seen before and one I hadn't, which showed that the NIH investigators, um, meaning the guys who get grants in academia— it's just the same cohort of people. You see the average age of the investigator who gets a grant has just shifted up like about a year every year. So it's the same group of people who got tenured faculty positions in the 60s have just given themselves grants every year for the last 50 years. Or if you look at the age of Hollywood stars, um, the number of stars who are you know, in their 30s leading people is like has just dropped off a cliff. But it's all these remakes with You know, Sylvester Stallone or whatever, guys in their 60s, guys in their 70s, that's sword. You look at, you know, Top Gun, that's a great example of that. You look at, um, you know, Republican versus Democrat, where you have these gerundocrats. All of these are kind of an attempt to kind of hang on to the past and reassert the past somehow because there isn't really a vision for the future. And, um, you know, I think that that's like, the base rate kind of concept that things are just going to remain the same tyler cohn calls them the base raiders is like this flatland concept like they just don't think things will change and i disagree with that um but, but let me pause there go ahead. yeah yeah so right and oh I, go ahead one other, one other thing i wanted I was coming back up you'd mentioned and we had just talked about how you know the wokes or you know the the communists and so on wanted to maintain the pretense that they were revolutionary even when they were ruling class The thing is, to slightly change lenses, and I mentioned this in the book as well, is the startup founder has the same thing. The startup founder actually, you know, uh, there's basically three cycles I talk about. There's the left cycle, the right cycle, libertarian cycle. Okay, so the left cycle is you have, uh, you know, an oppressed group, you know, uh, this very powerful uh, ruling class that's oppressing them you know through their spirit and their drive they win the revolution but then what happens is some stalin type comes in and compromises it it's like animal farm you know the dream of equality is lost new boss same as the old boss and you know they're oppressed and they're back to the mines again and you know there's actually a great little video on youtube called dinner for few that kind of expresses the left cycle in a in a in a in video form and the right cycle is uh you know hard men create good times good times um create weak men, weak men create, you know, bad times, bad times, create, you know, hard men, something like that. Right. And that expresses a different view, which is this group of totally aligned Spartan Nietzscheans with the will to power, you know, the early Roman empire, they go out, they ruthlessly, you know, kill whatever they need to kill. Then, you know, they get like fat and happy because they've got their empire. They kind of loosen up, they start degenerating, they lose Track of the values that made them great, and uh, you know now um, their empire falls and it decays and it cracks to pieces, Um, and then a new group of Spartans needs to rise. Right, that's the right cycle, and then the libertarian cycle or the tech cycle is you have a guy who um, is a uh, you know a, a founder that leaves this huge tech bureaucracy. Many times they fail, but if they succeed, they can build a little lean-to, they can build a little business model, they can start bringing some people to them. Then they may wildly succeed, they may have a big company, And now suddenly it actually becomes just like the big company bureaucracy that they left behind because they have to go from the burn rate where everybody must be indispensable to the bus number where every person must be dispensable. They have to build a multicellular organism where every single person you can't have one person leave and a thousand person company fail. So you have to make people. Dispensable. You have to make people replaceable, and in so doing, you start deadening individual initiative. The transition to multicellularity makes people who are really exceptional feel that they don't matter, and uh, that's the conflict between the bignesses imperative and the founder, you know, imperative. And then eventually, what happens is that founder leaves. And now, all of those things I argue are kind of the same cycle, where you have a zealous, committed group of people. That radiates out and eventually ends up if they succeed, most of them don't by the way, but if they do succeed in their revolution, in their conquest, in their empire in their in their company they um they end up building a structure that has features of its opposite, you know the rightist learns that they actually now that they've got all these people underneath them, they can't have the same like supremacist rhetoric or whatever, right The leftist learns that oh, now that they're actually running things, they can't have the same, you know, egalitarian rhetoric where everyone has a say because nothing ever gets done. And so you start coming up with a left-right fusion. And from the libertarian standpoint, the libertarian founder ends up rebuilding the state. And so once you kind of see this sort of cycle and you have a longer lens on it, the reason I keep referencing startups and tech companies, it's one of the longest experiments that people are familiar with because they run over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Anything that's Long, and it's the same entity and you've kind of seen it from start to finish. It's a, it's a parabola where the arc goes up and down and makes circles and you can talk about it and it's well documented and there's numbers on it. There's probably nothing else that we run in terms of microeconomic or microsocial experiments where the beginning and the middle and the end last within a human lifetime. Everything beyond the sort of life cycle of a company starts going to hundreds of years and then it's beyond one person's lifetime and you didn't see the whole arc and so that's why you have to then go to the history books. And that's why also people, you know, think things won't change because they haven't read enough history to have that long lens. All right, let me zoom out.
0: Uh, yeah, let me, let me I, zoom. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, the left and right wing circles, I mean, I, I think you're right, but, you know, it, it's a left wing and a right wing very within the context of, of secular liberalism, right? I mean, again, the left are kind of reenacting the Christian gospels in which, you know, the messianic age is happening in in our life. I mean, in some sense, they believe in the truer, in the truer message of the gospels that the the apostles believed in that the messianic age would happen in their lifetimes. Right. And once God died in the 19th century, you had these pseudo-Christian movements like Marxism that attempted to bring the messianic age into our real world. Unfortunately required gulags and, you know, the starvation of the kulaks and all the rest of it. And then of course, course the the right-wing cycle is one of a sort of studied nostalgia, right? Like I you know what, conserv- what conservatism means in the United States has always been the sort of Buckleyan maxim of standing athwart history, yelling stop. Right? It's some form of nostalgia that wants to crank the time machine knob back to some magical age where everything was lost. And you know that's somewhat different than than the actual conservatism you see in the ethno nationalist state of Europe, for example. Which is like, actually, no, it's the exaltation of our people and our land, right? But that's not a claim that one can actually morally, viably make. in in the United States, um, because we don't actually have that many. (laughs)
2: My
0: my one my one edit there would be to the word always. I think those
1: ideologies are the ones that have existed for the past few decades. But I think, A, they're changing. And I think, B, if you go farther back in time, they do change. You know, for example, in Europe for a long time, the left and right were allied where it was. Uh, you know, Hey, you know, left said, it is our moral duty to go and spread. And it's funny to call it the left. Okay. But it's what what I'm saying is the, the religious group or the revolutionary group wanted to go and spread Christianity to the heathens because it was a moral imperative and the ruling class was happy to go and like conquer, you know, people. And that combination gave a moral justification for the exercise of power, the left plus right. And that was a different, that was when Europe was in its expansionist mode when it's in its contractionist mode, it goes to different arguments, which say not, um, you know, here is my moral right to invade and colonize your country, but rather, Hey, here is my, you know, like justification to be left alone. Why are you coming into my country? Right. And it's kind of like the Dune thing, which is, you know, the Dune saying it's like, um, or the quote from Dune, which may itself be a paraphrase, uh, When I am weak, I ask you for mercy because that is according to your principles. When I am strong, I do not give you mercy because that is according to my principles. Right. That's a quote from from Dune. Right. And um, that's kind of like how a lot of ideologies are, you know, where uh, you'll see people propound. And I'm not beating up on the Europeans or whatever here. Like, actually, if you if you have a long enough lens, you'll find lots and lots and lots of groups doing this through history where you know, they propose uh, you know, or propound some philosophy of, you know, universalist maximalism, conquering, etc., when they have the power to do that. And then when they're on the back foot, then they, you know, propose, hey, it looks to have let's have uh, you know, um a rule of law, let's let's limit ourselves, let's limit government,
0: and so on and so forth. And and this flips back and forth, but I think it's a yeah, big but that, function But, that's, but that's, a, that's, a, that's a somewhat novel thing, Bolly, right? In the sense that there's a level of like, again, to, to co-opt a web three term, there's like a level of trustlessness and faithlessness and institutional corrosion and dissolution that, that you're right. I mean, everyone's being kind of a hypocrite and the right does it almost as much as the left. Um, but so let, let me, just cause we're running at the top of the hour, I, I do want to yes. get to one thing. I'm staring at this diagram on page 362 of the Kindle edition which is like your, your visual version of the network state. And again, I think given that it's the name of the book, we haven't gone into it quite enough. And I, I, and I think a lot of people might be shaking their heads when wondering like, what the fuck are you talking about with the network sure, state? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. There, and there's, there's a lot of preface that is like the gospel of, of Balaji, right? Which <laughs> I think if you follow Balaji, you're, you know, you, you're probably somewhat familiar with or if someone's had a conversation with you. And, but then the network state part, in my opinion, again, it's what I think is kind of the juiciest part of the book which, sure. it, because it resonates a lot with my own personal, A, like, like I said, I'm kind of bearish on the long-term. Like, I don't think there's going to be a breakdown tomorrow, but on the long-term basis, I'm kind of bearish on the nation state. And I think there will have to be some political firm that changes it. And I, I think your network state gets at things that are, are functionally already true, right? So yes. I'm looking at the graph that you've got, which is like this like idealized like Facebook growth dashboard of the network state or whatever. And it basically looks like this almost like either urban archipelago or like Hanseatic League of like elite cities from Tokyo, Mumbai, Delhi, Sao Paulo, New York, Lima. And it. I think a lot of people probably who are listening here live a similar lifestyle, which is like, okay, I literally, my entire life is actually spent between three or four neighborhoods in San Francisco, a similar number of hoods in Miami, uh, downtown Austin, and three or four neighborhoods in New York. And I have a circle of friends and people I know. And then like I started realizing... I don't even know where most of the people I know even live. Like, if you have to ask me, like, where, yes. where is their home? Where do they sleep at night? I'm like, I, I don't know. But we meet at centers of gravity, like various conferences, dinners and whatnot. And again, one of like half a dozen cities. And everyone kind of floats around uh, among that world and is very decoupled. I, you, know, I, you know, part of me, by the way, I mean, there's the <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like the um, Solzhenitsyn quote about good and evil dividing you know, humans right down the middle. In my case, I think left and right are divided right down the middle. Like I go off to my little red state desert hideout and I'm a total, yeah. you know, like rural traditionalist who like knows my neighbors and all the rest of it. And then I float into like these blue cities and I'm living in this techno-gnostic domain of living on Twitter and shuffling between three different neighborhoods and Airbnb and all the rest of it. And it's just, <laughs> and it's just like disembodied realm that I think in some sense mimics your notion of, of the network state. Which some would say, well, the trads would say, oh, it's these rootless cosmopolitan beliefs Well, but there's one, there's one
1: just... huge thing.
0: Yeah.
1: What? Yeah, can I say one go ahead. thing, though? So the one yeah, big go. thing that I really wanted to kind of emphasize is it is not what, what I describe in the book is not a purely digital construct. It's cloud first, land last, but not land never. So I totally because what often happens is people will be like, "Oh, we can't live in the cloud forever." So like, the whole thing here actually describes a process by which people can group to crowdfund territory and live together so they actually do know each other and rebuild communities where people you know live together and uh you know one of the reasons people tend to idealize um you know freshman year or you know college is because it's one of the very, very few times in modern Western life where you can kind of walk around in a community where everybody's being sort of selected on the same values and, uh, you know, the doors are unlocked and so on and so forth, right? It's actually, you know, it's funny, so, you know, who, who maintains some of the most rigorous border control in the world? Harvard, <laughs> right? right? Like the ruthless, ruthless border control where they only let in those people who, you know, and they talk about the entire acceptance rate, the admission rate, the border they care about is absolutely ruthlessly enforced, you know? and uh you know ruthless may be the term that you could call it selective you could call it this um because you know they don't want to just let anybody in they're not going to you know print a bunch of phd's degrees or whatever they want to keep the value of that script high and so the thing is though that essentially that membrane is what makes the community if you have selective admissions at a company or, or something else and then you have people who have the same values And then you don't have to argue everything from first principles. Conversely, if you only select, as kind of the the libertarian would do, only select on the basis of money, then you get I mean, look, you have something functional. You have the anonymous apartment complex, uh, you know, what do you call it, the douche cube or whatever of of San Francisco, right? (laughs) It's amazing
0: how that random meme has caught on so much. So many people actually repeat that at me. But hey, yes, the douche cube. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like I, I actually think, you know, they're they're
1: like fine or whatever, they're fine place to live. But the thing about it is it's it's something where literally there could be somebody who lives 60 feet away from you and you have absolutely no concept of who they are. You wouldn't recognize them on the street. You wouldn't you know, they don't they may not leave your the apartment at the same time. You know, there's people who live like just a few feet away that you never, ever know and never will know. Right. And one way of thinking about that is it's like, um, you know, the concept of like defragmenting a hard drive.
0: Yeah, yeah, I used to use Microsoft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so it's like it's like this extremely fragmented hard drive where the positioning of people is incredibly inefficient. Why is it inefficient? It's like, um, you know, you're most uh, think about how like a you know computers laid out. You have your you have your memory, and then you have your um, you have your RAM, and you have your L2 cache, and you have uh, your hard drive, and then uh, you know you have internet for data that's really far away, and it's kind of like you have something on your desk and then you have something on your shelf and you have something in the basement and then you have something at the store and you lay things out in terms of frequency of access order. You know, you're using your computers all the time. So you keep that on the desk and you only want milk once a, you know, once a week or once a month. So that's at the store. And so the point is that you're using space in an efficient fashion, but here we have a situation where all the things that are really close to you, all these people that are really close to you, you have nothing in common with them and vice versa, right? They're not, you know, like, like working on the same intellectual things. They're not funding the same things. They're not, you know, you don't even know what their premises are. That's all like basically mutually wasted space for everybody there. If instead you all group them into communities of like mind, there'd be all these amazing network effects that arise as just like a small example. You want to learn, you know, Turkish or whatever, being in a building with all Turkish speaking people would be a great way to be, to have immersion, right? There's a network effect there, you know, Um, Almost anything else which you value, you want to get fit. Well, a building where everybody, building slash community doesn't have to be a vertical building, of course, it could be a walkable community. Um, Any kind of community where everybody shares a certain value, like, you know, fitness is good, or, uh, you know, carbs are bad, or um, cancellation is bad, I'll get to that point. Anything where people share that value in common, now there's actually you know, kind of a default. It's like, you know, sports or the weather, you can kind of talk to somebody about it. You can assume they share that value. They'll have something to talk to you about it. It's in a, it's a hub. It's a, it's a point for that community. Everybody isn't just anomic and listless and, you know, can't assume that a stranger has anything in common, which is basically what like big cities in in, in the West are like nowadays. Um, And I think that rebuilding is not purely a commercial proposition. It is very much a moral and ethical proposition. That's this constant of the one commandment that I talk about. But I can, let me talk about the network state itself. Should I do that? Just very, very quickly.
0: Well, but hold on, but just, just one last comment on that, okay. right? Because what you're saying, I mean, so, the, the defragmentation process, which I think is a very good analogy for it, in some senses is, is a revolt against the Christian universalism that underlies like contemporary secular liberalism, mm, where, which you see particularly expressed in the not, U.S. because the U.S.
1: It, is it, a creedal nation. So there's aspects of it that you can consider critical of it. But there's aspects of it that you can actually think, I mean, in many ways, what, what, one of the things I say is like, um, a proposition is not a nation, but it can become one. In many ways, uh, what I'm talking about in the book is much more universalist than the current US establishment, which, you know, uh, one, one phrase I have in there is like, if if there really was a global democracy, would the 96% of the world vote the 4% of the world who are Americans, the power they have now? Probably not, Right. And many different claims well, kind depends. of American.
0: Well, <laughs> depends who else is running in the election biology. If it's the, the Chinese and the North Koreans, the no, U.S. might no, still I, win. But in any case, go yeah, ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. But, but people, what people would do is they would vote, you know, their own countries some power, right? Basically, it doesn't have to be America versus China. It could be, you know, you could have a decent, like, folks would basically want their own representation. Just as like a small example, like, India isn't on the U.N. Security Council, right? And, you know, but France is, Right. And, uh, you know, th- there's many aspects of the post-war order that were may have made sense in 1945, but simply don't make sense like 75, 80 years later. And many, many groups that, you know, look, you know, w- want to reassess that, right? Who feel that it's not, it's not, not just it's not fair, it's just like not sustainable um, to, to do that, right? And so the thing is, in a sense, what w- one of the things I propound here, I think, is a greater degree of universalism, where it says that everybody around the world uh, is eventually going to have an internet connection. I think we're at, p- past the majority of it. Everyone's going to have a smartphone. And that's actually, and this is kind of important, that's like extending the franchise to people. All of these folks, I mean, one way of thinking about it, a, a point that I make in the book is that um, in the early 20th century, the core of the left was the, um, the working class, right? And as people have observed now today, that's actually the core of the Trump right, the white working class. And how did that flip happen? How did right? you go from... Stakhanov to Archie Bunker, right? Stakhanov was the, you know, the the jacked Soviet Chad, you know, the the comrade who was a real bro, right? And, you know, basically could do the work of 10 men in the worker's paradise. He somehow took no vacations, right? So Stokhanov was like this super, um, you know, worker and all the intellectuals and artists and so on in the early 20th century. I mean, they really believed in this religion of like, you know, I shouldn't say religion, the doctrine of, this oppressed working class man and all of their noble qualities their long suffering. This, you read Upton Sinclair's book, you know, the jungle, uh, you know, folks went and they died in the Spanish civil war for this romanticized image of the working man. Right. Then by the seventies, suddenly you had like Archie bunker and now the working class guy was portrayed as this fat bigot, you know, and, you know, first of all, he was white. And so that part hadn't been stressed. He was white and he was racist and sexist and, you know, this and that. And so suddenly all of the negative qualities were brought to the fore and the myth-making took a, took a 180 degree turn. And the new proletariat was the marginalized. It's the, you know, women and minorities
0: and LGBT, like you and me, minorities, whatever, like,
1: well, but that's news. that's
0: that's just because that what that's different right i mean that, that's because i think in the us the left and right are inverted right and and communism never really came to the us because there wasn't enough class consciousness to do it in fact a lot of the european intellectuals that came post-war World II, like marcusa kind of complained that the us would never have a socialist revolution and so the communism that that was imported was basically weakness right Co- you know ah, so- was communism applied on the out in the racial dimension instead of the social class one and what you see with the right actually they're, they're way more class conscious if you look at if you look at politicians like jenny vance and Blake Masters, who actually come from the elite class, they reject the elite class, right? And they go back, they move back to the red states and say, no, 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 I'm fighting for you. And it's actually an anti-elite movement. I mean, there's, there's class consciousness on the right, and there's nothing but racial awareness on the left, which is a total sort of inversion of the traditional political spectrum in, in Europe, as it exists in Europe. So
1: on this, on this particular point, I would disagree with that. I actually think Yarvin's analysis on this is actually quite good, and why? Because he points to John Reed, he points to... Uh, the fact that Trotsky raised money in New York, he points to the fact that FDR diplomatically recognized the USSR. He points dude, but that, to but dude, that office. was but that, dude, but that was ages ago. That that that, that was that, no no that's that, like that they, was they a different start world. Startup money. Wait wait. So so like you know Anthony Sutton's Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. Like you know all, you know Wall Street also funded actually the Nazis. But Point is that um, if you go and look for the startup capital and the initial funders and propagandists and so on for the Soviet Union, like the Russian revolution was not wholly made in Russia. You know, it was like, there were a lot of Americans, a lot of foreigners who were involved in it. And uh, so the thing is that, you know, Yarvin's argument is that actually um, the, you know, the the snake and the mongoose live in the same, um, you know, like jungle. And so there's, There's a native immunity to communism within the West that was not there in these societies that were cut down by it. it's kind of like to take a totally different analogy, like think about the bringing alcohol to uh, North America. Right. This is something that Europeans had a lot of history with. And, you know, Native Americans did not. And it kind of devastated the the community in the same way. This ideology of, you know, leftist agitation was something that, you know, the. Europeans, the Western Europeans had kind of realized, you know, there'd been some of it that actually happened, obviously, in France, it all uh, had burst the host. But there, there were arguments there were Adam Smithian arguments against it. But when it was loosed in societies that did not have as much of a native resistance to it, it was this mind virus that just went berserk in Russia and China and so on. It's like, you know, COVID-19, but in reverse, right? It's, it's an intellectual virus, a mind virus, as opposed to a virus virus. And when you actually track the lineage, I think that that is the case. And so, it's, um, so when, when you say like communism didn't take hold in the West, it's true, but I think it's a little different. It's more like they had, um, they had the, the antibiotics for it at home. But you know, there's another aspect of it as well, which is if you were evil Elon Musk, right? You would talk left and act right. What do I mean by that? It means you would want to have Ford and GM and all these other companies, you'd want to export leftism, you'd want them to have strikes, um, but then at the same time, you would want to practice rightism that is say you want to practice an aligned variety of capitalism. Okay. And so hold, hold on just one second.
0: Balaji, for me, at least you cut out. By the way, I, I do want to, cause we're at like nine fifteen. Did we lose Balaji? Man. Mm, let me check what's happened. Sorry, you go didn't... ahead. Yeah. Well, so Sorry. I was just going to say, just, just because it's 9 15, and we could probably yeah. riff on politics till the cows Sorry. come home. Um, yep. Getting, you know, again, the, the network state, it's, it's good that you're calling that there's actually a physical component to it. I mean, if you talk yeah. to efforts like Praxis Society or Prospera, which are kind of startup states as well, they make Uh-oh. much. And I was hanging out with the Praxis people a couple weeks ago when I was in New York like they make much of the fact that it's like an in real life thing. It is not some metaverse and, you know, virtual, <laughs> you know, state. It actually is like a physical state in the case of Prosper, for example, for those who aren't familiar with the project, it's on an Island you know, <clears throat> in Honduras and it's actually been voted as like a semi-independent city state by the, as I understand it, the, Hungur- the Honduran parliament, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're, they're actually trying to make like, actually make the trains run on time or like have there be flush toilets and police and law and order and all the rest of it. <laughs> right. So I think it's, it's right to, to point out the fact that, And in fact, in your your sort of one paragraph definition of it, I'm just going to read most of it. A network state is a social network with a moral innovation. Again, you start with the morality first, a sense of national consciousness, a recognized founder. Again, there has to be a founder, a capacity for collective action, an in-person level of civility, an integrated cryptocurrency. There's the the crypto plug, an archipelago of crowdfunded physical territories. Again, there's the network archipelago concept of virtual capital and an on-chain consensus that proves a large enough population income and real estate footprint to attain a measure of diplomatic recognition. So once again, the sort of techno Hanseatic League on, on the blockchain to, to jumble together a bunch of analogies.
1: Yes, well, so one thing I will say is basically, I think it's crucial to combine the digital and physical, and here's why, is that cloud you know, network, if you look at the cover of the book, for example, like what we're trying to kind of get across is there's the revised cover or whatever, um, you can look at it on Amazon. Um, we're trying to get across is that There's a cloud community and it's just got projections down onto the land. Okay. And what that means is, yes, there's a physicality to it. That's crucially important, important. but that physicality has a backup. It's kind of like, you know, uh, if there's an American citizen, you know, in, in the movies or whatever, who had a problem in a foreign country, that person doesn't stand alone. There's this whole community behind them. The embassy or whatever will get involved to help them, et cetera. Right. And in the same way, you know, one of the issues, for example, that Prospero is facing is they have all of their eggs in one basket, right? They have a problem with their local jurisdiction, um, you know, and this is, this is one of the fundamental things, by the way, network states are not city states. Why are they not city states? Because city states have the physical centralization risk, you know, uh, San Marino, do you know what San Marino is?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's one of these tiny. It's kind of like Liechtenstein. It's one of these tiny principalities that somehow survived all the Europeans yes. in, in, the, in the mountains. That's right. The, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh. San Marino is like a duck billed platypus. It's like an artifact that is kind of survived. <laughs> right, it's this, it's a yeah, missing yeah. link. Right between the the past age and the present, where. You, know, you mentioned how Italy is actually a modern thing. So uh, San Marino evidently gave shelter to Garibaldi when he was like unifying Italy. And so, you know, in gratitude, he left them out of the unification process. So it's like this 30,000 person city-state-ish like thing that's in the middle of Italy that has its own flag and is considered its own nation state, but it's not really a nation state. It's like a holdover from the era of these tiny principalities. And actually most people don't know this, but within living memory, India at the time of unification, people know that it got its independence from the British, but they don't know that it was actually, you know, you know, India has kind of two things that are similar to July 4th. They're like Independence Day and Republic Day. And why are are they different? Well, because uh, they actually uh, had to unify 560 so-called princely states into India. And that happened basically barely within living memory in the late 1940s. Okay, so the princes and so on were around in India not that long ago, and it was this whole interesting thing you can read about. It's basically like the government offered them a deal: "Hey, you'll get a pension. Just give up your power, etc." They did. Then twenty years later, they killed the pension. Whatever. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> so, p- point being, though, that basically there there was this thing where you had these small, isolated princely states in India or city states slash principalities in Europe. And they got beat by these nation states, these gigantic kind of things that had economies of scale. And in fact, you know, um, today we think of nationalism as right-wing, but nationalism was initially left-wing, right? You know, with the, uh, with, you know, for example, the French Revolution, like nationalism was somewhere a way to unite all the people in something common and equal, as opposed to the order, the hierarchy of the king and and, you know, the church. And in fact, Germany basically in part unified because of the Napoleonic Wars and so on that made people think, okay, we need to group up for defense. So the point is that the nation state beat out the city state type thing because nation states had mass, they had scale and the city states were small. And so, you know, why, how could you beat something so big? You need to gang up into a group, right? So network state is like a V3. Why is it a V3? Because as the scale potential scale of a million or 10 million or even 100 million person thing, you know, because you can have people from across the world, but it has some of the flexibility of the city state um, because, you know, people can easily move between these. They can just switch their backlinks. Uh, you know, you have competitive government and so on. So it's sort of like how, you know, a cryptocurrency Bitcoin, for example, is like a V3. It has aspects of gold. But it also has aspects of you know the the how we currently use dollars. You can send it electronically and so on and so forth. So it has kind of it's like a v3 that's got aspects of both. If you just try to assert the v1, the v2 was set up to beat that. And so you actually have to have a v3 that kind of combines some of the good aspects of the v2 and and understands why it beat the v1 and then also take some of the good aspects of the v one And that's how I t-
0: think about it. Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, I mean, a, a lot of the network state is already coming true, right? And a lot of people are already living in a functional yeah. network state, but you know- uh, Okay, like, but
1: that's the part well, That's the, part I disagree. So, okay, I agree with the first part. I agree. So one of the things I have in this is that, the reason I have this very precise definition, that a network state is, so I, I say, and I have a whole thing, which is like, Facebook is not a network state, Google is not a network state, Bitcoin is not a network state, a DAO is not a network state. like. It may turn out that the, that the term is so popular that it just gets diluted down or whatever, but my my formal definition is it has to have diplomatic recognition from an existing state
0: but Whereas, but this is the start... problem. but this is the problem so this is the next thing I was going to say is that like to, you know again there 's like an embedded network state already within the u s or the greater west, and to some degree in, in federal republics like the united states there 's some margin of error in there in where look i mean. Again, I'm officially a Nevada resident. The law in Nevada is very different (laughs) than the law in California. And it's still part of the same union and you can put up with some level of that, right? But if you look at the history of the U.S. is a creedal nation slash almost like secular religion. Here we have these prophetic founders that gave us these sacred documents that are being interpreted by this rabbinical court. And from one day to the next, oh, my God, we've got this religious schism. And when you have this religious schism, the, the problem is people don't actually live and let live. Right. If, if you look at the history of major domestic political conflict in the United States, one side or the other always uses some instrument of the federal government to impose its scriptural interpretation on the other. And we saw that, obviously, in the Civil War. We saw that with the Civil Rights Movement. We see that in that, you know, even at the micro level, right? And, you know, a couple of years ago when I was a Washington resident, the state actually passed these gun control measures that banned, it was kind of California-style gun control. The Eastern counties, which are all red, the sheriffs refused to enforce the law. They just, they said, no, we're not going to do this. And in, in a similar way, like the sanctuary city concept where Blue City said, no, we're, we're just not going to support the federal government in enforcing immigration policy. We're just going to kind of rebel. And there's always been a little bit of that in the United States. Again, you and not to even mention like the total fucking third rail of abortion now post row, you're going to have state-by-state decisions that are fundamentally different morally. But if you deviate a little bit too much, you, 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 can't, you can't have a blue state network state or even a blue city network state because those blue cities will, again, as we're seeing with a lot of the, whether it be guns or abortion, other things, the, the, the conflict there will stay at this sort of existential and national level and people just won't tolerate there being a different set of guiding morality within their same higher level polity, right? Well, that, well, I think so, that's so the here, problem. Here's the thing: is basically the there's so many different axes
1: that one can build aside. And for example, like um, the kinds of things that Shiites and Sunnis disagree on are not the issues that animate American politics. It's a totally different kind of thing, right? And in fact, actually, if you go back further in time, obviously, the 1860s was slavery, but if you go back even further to like the English Civil War with the roundheads and the Cavaliers. Most people don't know this, but the, or, you know, Scott Alexander has a great review of it in his review of David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. But the North and the South were basically settled by two groups that were on different sides of the English Civil War. And so therefore actually it wasn't that surprising that they went to war again 200 years later. Like the, you know, the Puritans, you know, are like the, the, uh, descendants of the roundheads and the Virginians are like the descendants of the Cavaliers. And so if you have two groups that like, you know, that they hate each other and lose the civil war and then they migrate out and they settle different parts, it's not that surprising. They'd come into collision tribally on something else, even if the ostensible ideological rationale is different. And so the way I kind of think about this is, let me, let me make two points. 1st rewinding back to the beginning. Um, I, I use the term startup society as uh, because terminology is important, right? And we don't say that someone has started a public company. We don't say someone has started a trillion-dollar company. We don't say somebody has started you know, Facebook, Google. We say they've done a startup. That startup has the ambition of potentially becoming very large. But that initial thing is an embryonic thing, right? Like it's useful to have phrases that begin beginning and the end. And about a startup society as the beginning thing. And then you can have a, a purely digital version of uh, a startup society that starts to become able to do collective action. I call that a network union. Then one of the collective actions it does is it raises money to crowdfund territory offline. Then it becomes a network archipelago. And then if it achieves a large enough population and income and real estate footprint, and it starts to become larger than a UN listed country and larger than 10% of UN listed countries and so on, then it eventually might have the clout to gain diplomatic recognition, much as Bitcoin has become the national currency of El Salvador, much as um, states increasingly now negotiate directly with CEOs of social networks. That could happen. I think that's likely to happen. But here's the the problemology,
0: right? If, if, If you're actually dealing with actual territorial sovereignty, you're you're playing at a different level. Like it's no longer just a startup thing. Like I've done the startup thing, it, you know. It, it's very different. It's different. It's very different to engage in technical adventurism around crypto. It's another thing to like literally die for the DAO, right? To like yeah, take yeah, a yeah. bullet for this crypto collective thing. Like people have to be really motivated and really see themselves in the collective to do that. And I I find that hard to believe. In you know, in the case well, of well, so yes, yeah, so that's credits. why
1: I actually leave, that's why I lead with the concept of the moral innovation.
0: Right. You actually
1: have to um, because, you know, tech guys are very logical. Uh, Tech guys talk about what is um, true and false and what is profitable and unprofitable. And those are important things to know. Right. Like what is feasible and infeasible and so on. And, you know, media people actually, you know, even though they don't call themselves preachers or whatever, most articles. I mentioned this in the book, but most articles nowadays, mainstream media articles are just not really about true, false, but about good, bad. Right? They're saying X is good, Y is bad. Y is good, X is bad. And you know, that they're they're basically just giving a um, like 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 preachers, you know, they're, they're saying they're kind of reemphasizing this is good, this is bad. Once you agree that something is good or something is bad, that moral innovation actually also enables technological innovation. This is the thing I think that was obvious to the turn of the century progressives, but that we're kind of we have to like sort of reunify those. For example, uh, you know. Public health, in the sense of you know sewage and uh, you know flush toilets and all that stuff, you know there's the aspect of cleanliness being next to godliness, and then also obviously the aspect of disease control. Once there was the will to be clean, once the moral imperative to be clean was there, there was the way, which was all of the plumbing and all of the massive infrastructure and build out and so on. And if anybody resisted. It say people say, well, what, you want to be filthy? You know, that's actually, that's not a godly thing to be. That's, it wasn't just religion, but, you know, that's a piece of it. And so, you know, that's like an example. Another example is like the moral innovation, the inversion where you go from, this is a famous one, but you go from uh, geocentrism to heliocentrism and over time, that leads to better star charts and oceanic navigation and in, in the very fullness of time, hundreds of years, you know, satellites and so on. And so, Sometimes flipping something which was good to acceptable or acceptable to bad. Another example is capitalism in the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union had a moral innovation that was a bad one, which said capitalism bad. That is a whole tree that you can explore. Given that, that leads to a dead end. And when they flipped it back to capitalism, good. Now, you know, you have Estonia, you have uh, Eastern European countries, a bunch of places have done well with that. So moral innovation, actually, you know, you know, that uh, thing from Jurassic Park, the the guy spent so much time thinking about whether they could, they didn't think about whether they should, you can actually invert it, you know, if there's a will, there's a way. And so you start with that moral innovation, you're like, this should exist. Here's my argument for why here is my historically founded argument for why with all this evidence, it's not just an off the cuff preference, it's founded and all this stuff. And then you build a community on the base of that. And when you say would you definitely doubt? Well, for example if you're against life extension, you want us to die. Right. If somebody's
0: really fighting life extension, they want people who are, well, I, I think there's a difference between not being a transhumanist and being a human extinctionist. Right. I mean, there's a little bit of space there, but I, but, know, but, I know, but I'm, but, Balsy, but, but, what's, but, but again, what's you're dancing around the issue. What is the moral innovation? What, what will drive somebody to actually die for their crypto network state?
1: Oh, the point, the point of the book is basically that that is a, that is a parameter. I'm a, as a polytheist, one of the biggest things about this is that I am giving a framework where um, I'm, I'm not opinionated on what somebody's one commandment is. This is like sort of the opposite of the Abrahamic culture, you know, <laughs> in a sense, like I'm I'm giving a toolbox, which basically says, look, people have, you know, beliefs that, uh, that they will be able to defend and articulate. Oh, let me give you a great example. that's like less controversial or like or that's just easier to understand. The modern American diet is actually pretty bad. People are getting fat and so on. There's at least two deviations from that, which I think would give you healthier societies like the vegans or the carnivores. You know, both of those are mutually incompatible deviations. But if you had a society of all people who ate, you know, vegetables and so on and so forth, and they're not eating processed, you know, like like uh, foods and and, uh, candy bars and stuff, they'd probably be fairly healthy. They might run and so on and so forth. And you've had a, a society of carnivores that yeah, eat meat and lift weights. They also would be fairly healthy and again, not eating processed food, but those societies also would be the vegans and carnivores would be in mutual, you know, like uh, disagreement with each other. Yet both would be improvements over the status quo. Okay. And, and the reason I bring up diet is as you know, because it's something that's done every day uh, it's, it's often the core of many religious observations. Right. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a good kind of thing because it's so frequent to build things around, you know, you build out entire supply chains, you know, kosher and stuff, you know, like the, the moral will enables the technological way, all kinds of food is prepared, not, you know, because it has to be that way for, for biochemistry reasons, but because it's that way for various moral
0: or ethical or religious reasons. Right. So that's a good I, I got I get a apology, but hold on. But my, but that's my claim, right? The society is today and crypto, of anything, is like a step further out on like the techno capitalist extreme is not producing defensible moral valence that people will dedicate their lives to. Right. Like, oh, it, I it so is disagree the, part that. of the reason, so... part of the reason why I'm trying to raise my kid inside Judaism is because I don't want her growing up in a world in which the only functioning oh. organizations she sees are corporations, which are yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. organizations okay. seated around greed and nothing else. Right. But that, so that, that's so the that part... set of affairs. I, I, and I don't know that getting more crypto solves that right sorry, sorry let me let
1: me let me let me disagree with half of that and agree with half of that so the part i totally agree with and this is an important thing i do mention in the book but i actually need to evidently add, add more on this or, or like just expand on it the benedict option or curious joel or something like that is a totally acceptable and good one commandment
0: okay meaning for, for those who don't know what curious joel is it's a uh, Orthodox Haredi community in in like north of New York that basically runs the city in a and but not every jew is a fan of this to be clear, but in any case sure it is, sure, sure it is kind of a quasi theocratic state almost within like new york so, uh, fine right yeah. so you know like basically
1: what i what I, what I mean by that or the bendic option is like rod dreher 's thing of building a christian opt in community right, and that is um so the one commandment in that sense is you know traditional Judaism or traditional Christianity is good, right, and then you import that entire library, which has all of these religious practices predefined for you and so on, and those are that's like off the shelf and you know it's work to replicate a culture and a civilization for generations and that's totally a reasonable thing to do as well, so I think of that as a subset of this, which will definitely appeal to some people and The overall infrastructure around it is something where, you know, there is a powerful startup machinery, right? We have built this powerful, you know, this optimizing function where once you've got a metric, you can just hit that and you can put analytics on it and you can put venture capital behind it and so on. And this time it's society as a service rather than, you know, software as a service. So society as a service, you have that moral innovation. And the reason it's a moral innovation, the reason I keep saying that is with with a tech company, you're trying to win in the market. And so you have a product and it's an individual decision as to, for somebody to buy this, uh, you know, uh, IOT vacuum cleaner or something like that, right? Individual decision as to whether to um, go and sign up for this service, okay? Whereas when you're joining a startup society, that is something where the, you know, the network is the product, the community is the product, the values of the community are the product. And that doesn't need to be, and in fact, often will not be a technological innovation. It is a moral differentiation from the rest of society. there is something that the rest of society thinks is good that you think is bad or vice versa and that actually gives a, a value proposition that you, you have a very clear value proposition, and then you can tease that out. for example, if you have and I go through this example like keto kosher, if you go through like the what carbs bad would look like if you take that as a moral premise carbs bad okay so first of all that affects every meal, it affects every restaurant, it affects every um, grocery store means you know little this sugar you're really out of it happens first of all probably your people lose twenty or thirty pounds right away um and you know they they just deflate like the inflammation of being fat just kind of goes like this so you've got great before and afters you can use that to market your network archipelago around the world, you say, come to Keto Kosher, and you'll lose weight. And the society will help you do that. Because you'd have to drive outside of it, you have to actually travel outside of it, in order to go and expose yourself to this poison of, you know, processed food. And we're giving you a defense against all of these corporations that want to poison you with addictive sugar. And we will, you know, you can go further, you can block those ads, right? You have routers for the community that are blocking ads for the stuff. You can block those ads. Amb- you can decide how far far to take it. You can also do things where you um, give people CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, so they're monitoring, you know, the sugar levels. Basically, once you just start with that moral premise of carbs bad, and you actually tease that all the way out, there's an enormous amount of development that you can have on that. And I think that's this important concept of you start with, you know, the will, and then you figure out the way from that, and I think the big difference is because I'm not a monotheist because I don't come from that, you know, faith, tradition, like I don't believe in imposing one way on the rest of the world, but I also know that you can't beat one with
0: two, but I do think you can beat one with infinity, right? Like, well, you know, just kind of, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say monotheism necessarily implies universalism by the way. I, I think that to the largest monotheistic faiths, like Islam and Christianity definitely do, but, but Judaism has often had a sort of conflicted, there's a, there's a tension inside Judaism between particularism and universalism and that, that has been going on for centuries. And so I, yes, I wouldn't necessarily equate monotheism with universalism, but I, I kind of get what you're saying. But I I would still say like, even in your keto example, and it's absolutely the case that a lot of these like restrictionist diets and the whole fucking OCD about this shit resembles some Haredi person trying to figure out like, if there's like any milk in, in, in whatever meat that he's eating because you can't bind the two because this and that. But, you know, it's, It's still like this sort of like dim echo of the sort of religious superstructure that that gives you enough scaffolding, so to speak, between, you know, your moral life, your social life, your sexual life, your political life to actually create a curiosity or something. Right. And it's funny, one story that I haven't written yet because reasons. But, you know, I, I went to this National Conservative Conference last October and it's it's the new right. It's all the people. It's Deneen. It's Adrian Vermeule. It's the Rob. It's, Therab, it's all, you know, all these buggers that people who follow me know who they are. And, and right before, it was interesting contrast, I, I went to um, basically Chabad is these Haredi, uh, you know, it's this Jewish movement that I, I wouldn't they're not proselytizing exactly, but they definitely try to pull Jews back into practice. Right. And it's one of the few sort of denominations or, or areas of Judaism that's actually expanding and you go to their conference and it's this incredibly effusive party. They have missions. Again, they don't call them missions. I think they call them ambassadors. Uh, well, Sluchim in, in, in Hebrew all, all over the world and, you know, it's this incredibly enthusiastic, positive thing and then you go to the National Conservatives and it's this, it's this kind of like grim, sullen LARP where they want to bring back blue laws and basically live like 1954 and it's just kind of this total fucking downer, right? And, mm-hmm. um and, and And a lot of, and that's, and that's why, I mean, I think there's some elements that are kind of interesting or vital to the new right. Again, people like Vance and Masters are new voices in politics and they're winning elections and there's obviously something there. But I think a lot of that new right movement is, is basically just a LARP and it's, it's not real at all. And it's just, it's literally paper thin. And If you actually look at, you know, if you actually see what a real religious revival would look like, which is, by the way, like 10,000 Chabad rabbis dancing, sweaty, drunk in the middle of a conference center in in New Jersey. Right. It's like a total mosh pit. Right. That's that's what that looks like. It it does not look like, you know, Adrian going on about, um, you know, Catholic integralism in the United States, which is never going to happen. Right. And so I, I, I just I don't see that moral valence being produced. Anywhere in society, even among the trad elements, all the people with their little saints and weird esoteric quotes and shit in their Twitter profiles, I suspect have like Pornhub open on the next tab. Right. And I don't actually think they're actually that traditional or anything else and that it's all kind of a LARP. Right. And so like I just don't see that moral. Th- there are examples of it. Again, the Chabad movement is one. I'm sure there's others in other traditions that people can cite. That's the one that I, that I would cite. But I, I don't see a lot of that. Right. And, it, and well, again, so you start your pitch by starting at the moral level. So show me the holy book. Show me the guru, sure, show sure. me the cult. Like, where, where is the... Well, where yeah, yeah, the sure, sure, sure. So, so two
1: two or three things. First is, a big part of this is reunification of the moral and the practical. So, um, you know, very roughly today, you have the left as a right as a practical. And the left says, this is good, we need to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And the right argues, that is impractical, that is not profitable, that is going to bankrupt us and, and whatnot. But the right isn't putting out its alternate vision of the good. The left isn't, making sure that the dollars and cents add up and the way that you, I think align those is with a startup society where the check on it is whether people decide to come in. And uh, you know, so what you're, what you're mentioning is you're like, look, these people who are born into the modern world, they are, they, they, they are saying that they want tradition, but they're actually extremely modern. They don't actually believe it and so on. And I'd say, yeah, you know, that's probably true. And so the answer is for them to start a startup society And whatever rapprochement that they're going to pick on a bunch of parameters that I couldn't enumerate in a word or a sentence or a paragraph, there'll be 50 different parameters, some unsaid, some implicit that they pick for their startup society. And then, you know, maybe, maybe porn, is banned. band, whatever. I don't even know. The point is that they, they pick all these parameters and, um, then you see whether people come into that community or not. And, so you're actually testing that ideology quote in the market of, you know, whether people will migrate there or not. This is actually also, by the way, the early America, um, you know, Nordhoff's book, which I mentioned, the communistic societies of the U S at the time in the, in the 1800s, communism didn't yet have the connotation it did in the 1900s. It, it didn't mean the forcible dictatorship of proletarian take the earth. It meant opt in living together. And it was kind of more like kibbutzes and just like, you know, um, some of the kibbutzes actually became profitable businesses like Neta, Netafim, if you're familiar with that, you know, the irrigation uh, company. Uh, some of the American communes like Oneida, the glass company, arose out of that, right? Uh, rose out of the Oneida commune. And so the, the thing is that I don't – one of the things is when I look at my kind of study of history – I can point to thousands of examples of these successful communes in the U.S. then. So I know that this is a configuration that has worked for human beings before the sort of polytheistic thing where you have, you know, whether it's a Joseph Smith for, you know, the Book of Mormon, or you have the Puritans, or you have the Virginians, or you have the Unitans, or you have this or that, you know, sort of quasi-religious or doctrinal colony, you, you know, the Quakers and you have, you know, these the, the Shakers and so on. Um, You know, America had the ability for all of these opt-in experiments, and then people would move between them, and that's kind of what it used to be. And I, I think now with the internet, we have something that's like that, where people can pick out whatever site they want to go to, they go and check it out, they might tour it, they might do a VR tour, they might look at the moral premises, they might come there, they might visit, depending on the visitation rules, and then they might... Become a, a a shareholder subscriber is what I call it.
0: that's not what uh, sorry, just in interrupt for a second. That's not what it's gonna take, right? You're, you're describing shopping for food in, in a food court when if you look no, no, again. No, 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 no. Israel was I, so founded I, along is, very it, so different me, lines.
1: Me, me. So, now hold on, let me let, so let me distinguish dis- 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 this. Just like there's a difference between buying an iPhone and building an iPhone. There is a difference between the citizen as consumer and the person who actually wants to build it, the so-called shareholder subscriber or the, or the founder of the, of the Startup Society or Network State. So the guy who wants to buy an iPhone is a consumer and they're just shopping for things. Somebody who wants to build it is there for blood, sweat, and tears, you know? Um, it's much harder to build than it is to buy, as you know. And so uh, a big part of this is look, there's no shortage of people out there who have various causes. What this is, it gives an engine that they can attach those causes to the mechanisms of the startup society and eventually the network state and a mechanism that they can use to test in the market and see if it's not just attracts to people in the abstract, but also
0: if it practically works. Okay, dude. But again, where do you find that pioneer class that's willing to take a bullet for the doubt? Like I, I hate to harp on it, but how, how does that happen? Right? Cause that's, that's what he, that's it's what it, it needs to happen initially. So I mean, well, first of all, uh, you know,
1: the, there's several, several different things to unpack that one is a big part of this is about being nonviolent, right? Like you don't have to take a bullet for Bitcoin. The billions of dollars worth of property are protected via encryption because it's online. So some of this, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the way that we get goods nowadays, you're not constantly raiding somebody who's going to kill the guy and take his food, huh? Who's who's willing to, well, we can buy it. We actually figured out higher order abstractions that replace raids with trade, right? So part of this is actually about radically reducing the amount of violence. Okay. Number two is, um, in terms of the commitment to go and build it, as I said, there's lots of folks who kind of have their movements and so on out there. There's, there, there's no shortage of influencers and you know, thought leaders and whatever with passionate communities. That part is kind of in excess, and, uh, you know, so you're arguing, you know, do, do those people exist? And so I'm saying I kind of think they do. What they haven't had is an engine to go and put their their society into. The third thing I'd say is, and I think you're underestimating this, we say, oh, crypto hasn't aroused that passion. Zone. Crypto might not have. And I could argue that point. But Bitcoin certainly has as a subset. You know, Bitcoin people, maximalists would say Bitcoin, not crypto. Bitcoin maximalism is really important. It is like Old Testament Christianity in the sense of, I, I can't emphasize to you how much passion it arouses among a certain kind of person. And, you know, wokeness, for example, was also dismissed in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Barry Weiss, you know, said she would go around saying, hey, these crazy people are taking over faculty lounges. And uh, you know, people would say, oh, who cares? It's just Oberlin, lol. And some some kind of person, there's a certain kind of person who can only see something when it's at 30 or 40 or 50% support. It's hitting them. You know, smack in the face. The riots have already happened. The fires have already happened, and they're like, "Oh, okay." But there's others who can see things when they're at, you know, 0.1 percent or 0.01 percent, and they're like, "Okay, this could become an exponential." Just like what wokeness was like 10 years ago, maximalism is like that. It's very important. And so, in
0: terms of the commitment of internet ideologies, I can point you to one, but. I think there will be well, so just. Just to be clear, I, I do think I think crypto is a rallying cry. Like I myself, am getting interested in Web three and starting a company there because, in some sense, there's an but not you know crypto, one, not one of the divisions like, in society. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Crypto saying crypto in this context is like saying religion is a rallying cry, whereas I'm talking about a specific thing. Bitcoin maximalism is a specific thing, and crypto is like a general umbrella concept, right? Maximalism, by virtue of it being essentially like monotheism, but it's mononumism. It is an evangelist. Like, you know, lazy,
0: like the funny uh, okay, thing is. Okay, but it's, but it's, but, but the point is that it's a revolt against the the institutions that are considered to be rotten from within and mistrusted from without. Yes. And yes. whether you're a Bitcoin maxi or whether you believe in Ethereum, like, forget the little crypto civil war for just a second. The point is that both of those people think that the existing versions of solving those problems are both, you know, technically deficient and morally corrupt, and they're going to build a different uh, world with different but, tools. But they're, right? well,
1: yes, except the difference is, you know, and I think actually Noah Smith kind of came to this conclusion independently in some ways i do think that in the future political spectrum by 2040 or thereabouts you know if you think about where the political spectrum was in the 1920s and where it is where the right and the left center point where it's like moved unimagined the future political spectrum will be probably something where ethereum is like the left and you know bitcoin is the right uh, in the west and why why is that when i say ethereum i mean the concept of being able to start multiple coins the start, the concept of Having it not be completely irreversible, the concept of allowing for some change, and Bitcoin is like immutable, you know, uh, in a sense, ultra conservative, because 21 million never change, you know, small c ultra conservative, and so on and so forth. And that's, I think, where it goes. Now, the thing is, in some ways, that is um, to the economic right of the current society, because you're like, wait a second, that's saying that, you know, cryptocurrencies are good and that they're legal and everybody can hold them and so on and so forth. True, but it's also too significantly to the cultural left of the current society because it says that the country, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum don't make any reference to like the American state, you know? It does, doesn't make any reference to the American government. It doesn't make any reference to any of those institutions. It, these are international laws unto themselves. They are a rule of code and they're transnational and they work as well in, you know, Bolivia and Bulgaria as they do in Boston, Right. And so they're actually far to the uh, like it's, it's continuing the same direction as 1950. If you if you think about 1950 versus today and you take the political compass, the lower left corner is left libertarian, lower left corner is right libertarian. Since 1950, we've become much more left libertarian and right libertarian. For example, the gay billionaire is the bottom left and the bottom right corner at the same time, it represents a huge social and economic deviation from the 1950s consensus. And if you just take that arrow and you push it out further you get something which I think looks like this spectrum that I'm describing, where it's completely internationalist, so it's the lower left corner. It makes no reference to any of the old kind of institutions and so on. It's much more global. It's much more inclusive in that sense. Um, the new franchise is the phone, right? All these billions of people who did not have a say in the U.S. discourse that did affect them, that did result in sanctions or bombs, or, all those people now have a say. So it's far to the left in that sense because global democracy in a sense. But it's also economically to the right because global
0: marketplaces that i think is the direction that we're going to be going and let me stop there well balaji and you know in the like bitcoin ethereum civil war of 2068 what, what side are you taking out of curiosity
1: <laughs> i am in the sunni shiite you know um uh the same side as in the hutu Tutsi i'm a non-combatant in all of uh, try to be non-command
0: in all civil wars and just try to build a positive some society. Hmm. I don't know about this, Balaji. Okay. So we've been going almost two hours. Some people have actually been queuing in the caller thing. I'm not sure if we want, if you want to do questions, Balaji, we've been running for a little I bit. I can do
1: questions for a few minutes. One thing I'll just say is I put something in chat, which is a GIF that is kind of a cool GIF. I think, um, do you see that? HTPS colon front slash front. It's front slash network and right. That, that's, the one that, you know, that's the
0: one that I was referencing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and that shows a visual of how you could start a country from your computer. Right. You have one person then 10 and then 100 and 1000 and 10,000 and you, you know, LARP it into reality. And that's actually what cryptocurrencies are. But now we can do it for crypto countries. Okay, let me take a few questions, and then i got to jump in, in five minutes.
0: Okay, um, let me – thank you for posting that. I, I, if I had known I could do that, I would have done it myself. Um, so Pax is has been waiting very patiently since almost the show started. I, welcome, Pax.
2: Hello there. Do you hear me?
0: Yes. Yes. All
2: right. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. Uh, yeah, I got the book uh, on the night of July 3rd. I'm here in Hawaii, so I got it before the 4th. I'm about 40% done. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, let's go back to the, the one commandment and this whole idea that, that a network state can be started just on the basis of a, a single thing, or, or really your point was it needs to have some sort of moral or ideological foundation that is kind of going to unite, you know, everybody that wants to be a part of this voluntary you know, network state. Could you? That, that's kind of interesting because, you know, in, in polite society, you know, for the last few decades, it's like when we're out in public or talking with our friends, these, these are the kind of things we don't talk about is morals and yes. ideology the yes. things that divide us. So, you, you know, you just, uh, you don't talk about it. You talk about the weather, you talk about sports, you talk about all this other irrelevant bullshit. And uh, <laughs> so you're saying, forget that, let's, let's get to the heart of, of the matter and the heart of what, you know, drives us, motivates us, and make that the unifying thing so we can actually build... Uh, communities that are uh, you know like-minded and motivated and and willing to work together to to change the world
1: absolutely and actually you know there's a strong like left current i think through you know my work i think on this and the way I, the way i but with one major asterisk and the major asterisk is one thing i say in the book is um you're right that people are morally reticent right they're reluctant to go and talk about morals or ethics and so on. Hey, it's not my place to say and so on. But they're also simultaneously politically evangelistic, right? So that same person yeah. who's a zero suddenly jumps to infinity, right? They go from, yeah. it's not my place to say what someone else should do to, I will impose my ideals on someone else at gunpoint. And I have no shame yeah. in doing that. And in fact, I post on that all the time, right? So that same person is almost like bipolar where they go from zero to infinity like this, Right. And in the middle of zero infinity, pick a one, right? You have sort of one premise that you're willing to defend in depth, right? Like with a historical thesis and with lots of concrete examples and lots of graphs, and you're willing to take risk on that and build a startup society on that and say, this is the main problem with society right now. And if we fix this problem, we will have a better society. And now you're not like a politician who has some non-binding campaign promise I mean, by the way, that alone is kind of like this enormous scam, frankly, because a politician can say something and get elected and then not do it. And it's like a, you know, buying milk and it comes back as orange juice. You know, you can do a customer, um, you know, uh, you can do a customer lawsuit for something like that. I forget the exact term, but it's like it's basically fraud. Right. Um, so like electoral fraud is common in the sense of the policy that's promised that you voted for that you spent your vote on is not the one that actually results or it's not even necessarily always proposed. So instead of that, instead of that thing where we sort of acknowledge and take for granted that it must be a scam. Instead, you have the one commandment where, you you know, if, if that startup society is not sufficiently delivering on that one commandment that you came from, then you leave. Now, there's another yeah. aspect, which is they may have the will, but they may just, you know, execution is hard. A start, startup is hard. A startup society will be hard. So they may be partially their way through there. They're not fully carb-free. They, they still have, you know, some sugar stuff or whatever. I'm just taking that example. Or, um, you know, a, another example like, you know, the... Uh, like the CrossFit side where folks are working out or, you know, maybe it's uh, the Chinese immersion or Turkish immersion. They, not everybody there is constantly speaking it all the time. Not all the signs are in Turkish or like they may not be all the way there, but that's different from not making the effort at all. Right. And so by, by picking between the zero of like no moral, you know, discussion whatsoever and the infinity of a total belief system imposed on someone at gunpoint, this, I think is that intermediate. Let me pause there. Go ahead, Pax.
2: Yeah. Uh, what I what I like, though, is when you kind of, there's many different ways this can play out. I mean, it could just be social clubs for veganism or carnivorism or anything like that. But in the book, you kind of position it as a third alternative to, like, you know, on one hand, we got this crumbling Anglo-American empire, you know, uh, regime change wars, uh, exploitation in the third world. And on the other hand, we got this rise of this, you know, totalitarian China yes. and speech. And and you I think the what's interesting for me is really the revolutionary potential of this in that it could be a you know, a third way in between those two extremes. And uh yeah, it's another thing coming back to the, the moral issue and how people in, in the past have been kind of reticent to talk about that stuff, you know, among their friends at the ball game or whatever, I, I really think social media has kind of <laughs> allowed people to, to voice these because you can actually criticize your buddy without looking him in the eye, you know, on social media. Right. You, can, you can critique and, and give all kinds of your opinions, and you really don't care what that whoever you're talking to thinks. You're just, you know, and you're not worried about making friends. You're just, you're trying to proselytize for your, you know, your moral point of view.
1: That's right. And the reward is popularity, but there's no, there's no penalty for lack of follow through on it and so on. I agree with yeah. you, Pax. I'm, I'm glad you got some value out of it, and uh, I think it, it's good. It's good to see it resonating because I think you're right. I'm trying to propose a third way that's not conflict, that's not war, that's not taking the last century's very bloody Cold War template and putting it onto this one. Not okay. just trying to, you know, do any of that. So I appreciate. I'm glad that you, you got that out of it. Why, why don't we move on to somebody else for a question?
0: Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna call up the next person. But just to riff one last thing, people are probably sick of me hearing it. Apologies. But so recently, I had an interesting experience. I don't know if you know Anna Gott. She's kind of in our yeah, circle. Yeah, yeah, inter intellect. Yeah. Yeah, inter-intellect, yeah. yeah, inter-int which is very interesting and a fascinating concept, and I suspect it'll do very well. I just went to one of their events. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's kind of a literary salon slash membership society in which you kind of join. And Anna, who's a very a very good hostess and you know very interesting, just you know just just organize these events. And there was an event that a member at a at a, at a dinner at their house. And it was very nice. And, and again, I'm going to sound like the fucking super Jew here, but it's like, man, this is like, this is like being part of a synagogue, but without Judaism, right? Cause there's a membership fee in synagogues, by the way. You have to like join it like a social club and people think that it's, Oh, it's all about going to temple and this snap. But a lot of it's just like, Oh, going to the men's club or there's like a book discussion group. It's, it's basically a social club that has a little bit of moral scaffolding around it and common values, but it's very you know, often. You could be a longtime member of a synagogue and never once actually go to to a religious ceremony. And it reminded me a lot of what Anna was doing. And again, it gets back to the issues. I know you're nonviolent by nature, Bology. But I think, (laughs) again, if you look at Ukraine, in which obviously I have a rather strong public position, um, you know, it's out of such fires that that nations are forged. And, you know, the the, the Ukrainian national movement has been there kind of on again, off again for the past couple centuries. But this is definitely a defining moment for it. As horrible and violent as it is. But Ukraine will not be the same after this war as it was before. Um, and, it, and it'll be hard for any European who hasn't, you know, no one there has actually fought an existential war in, you know, two or three generations to claim that Ukraine is a fake country, uh, you know, a country is as a country does. And if you have rows and rows of men and women dying for that flag, then that flag actually means something. Right. And it's, it's hard yeah. to point out another mechanism that makes that flag mean something. Right. Well,
1: so Indian you know. independence, Indian. In, so I'm not disagreeing that a war of independence is one way to do it, but there's four influences. If I was to point to just four countries, I would consider the most influential on the concept of the network state. Certainly, one is obviously America in terms of, you know, the declaration, the constitution and and so on. It's it's uh, There's, you know, so many things for that. But the other three would be Israel, India and Singapore. Israel because a country started with a book, you know, with Der Judenstadt by Herzl. Um, Singapore because... It's like a CEO. Well, well, some, some, some,
0: some, would cl- some would claim it actually started with the Bible, but yes. I mean, in the modern version, <laughs> it started with the set, but yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. And so so you have, you know,
1: you have obviously America, you have Israel, which started with a book and that kind of intentionally had that moral preposition. Uh, you know, it had, it. you know, it revived Hebrew. It had that very strong moral Zionist drive, as you mentioned. Um, Singapore, which has, you know, the CEO and the city state and the you know really hard nosed focus on dollars and cents and you know making sure things work. Singapore also had its own moral innovations. For example, like it used to be an opium den, um, you know because of the opium wars and so on. Like the British, and so they had gotten huge swaths of Asia addicted to drugs, and drugs were not considered that big a deal. And Singapore, you know, one of Lee Kuan Yew's innovations was death penalty for drug smugglers. They don't have a drug problem. In fact, they have you know if you look at the stats, they have fewer people executed for drugs over the last like 10 years. I think that San Francisco has du- alone has drive from drug overdoses in like, you know, a month or something like that. So it's actually like, if you want to talk harm reduction, harm reduction is death penalty for smugglers. Singapore won the war on drugs. And that's a moral innovation. You know what? Like people will lose their minds about that. Oh my God. Because it's so far outside the Overton window, but it completely worked. And, you know, so, so that's Singapore. But then the last is like India, which got uh, independence nonviolently. And, that was something where it didn't have to fight a gigantic conflict. It didn't have to, you know, it was it was something where there was a, a, a moral aspect to it. It was, um, you know, something where, you know, Gandhi and, and others certainly like, you know, there were strikes or all this uh, stuff. Uh, there were groups within India who wanted to fight violently. And, you know, I, I wouldn't consider that illegitimate. Um, but I do think that the aspect of being able to gain independence nonviolently is actually really important. And so you have to kind of, you know, that's how I think about it is, um, you know, Singapore actually also gained independence nonviolently from Malaysia. They were, they were like, I think, one of the only countries in the world that became nonviolent independently. And so, you know, the goal in some ways is violence minimization, right? Death minimization, you know, and uh, this is something where you can get there with nonviolent independence, in my view, as opposed to violent independence.
0: Okay, let's let's take a couple more questions. I, we're kind of running out of time, but um, let, let's let's. A lot of people have lined up. Let's let's take Christoph, who's up next. Christoph, are you with us? Hmm, we might have lost Christoph. Uh, okay,
1: well, I, I've got to, I've got to jump now. So why don't we?
0: Okay. Um, wh- why don't we call it for now, and then okay. let's uh, talk there again. All right. Cool interesting as always thanks for for spending some time on your launch week i'm sure you're very busy how many interviews are you doing a day Baja?
1: i'm trying to do different ones but basically i'm trying to actually push out some content so you give me some things i'll, I'll push some updates and things just clarify certain points and uh so that's i'm kind of you know like like the prius every time the prius breaks at a stop sign it charges up and it's regenerative braking. you know so kind of like that i <laughs> want to try to figure out some points and edit them so thanks
0: Balaji, I have to say your ability to make like te- technical metaphors for social problems is unparalleled. And I'm someone who <laughs> tended to do this in my own writing. But calling, for example, <clears throat> the problems we have with like the virtual states that we all live in a fragmentation, like a disk defragmentation problem is kind of genius. It, if you get if you get the Windows OS reference, <laughs> of course. Um, so um, well, great. Thank that. you, Balji. And thanks Thank you, for having sir. us. And the book is The Network State. Available where all fine books are sold. Currently only in Kindle, but Audible and, and, and hardcover, I understand, are coming. And yes. um, follow the just completely inimitable biology. Balaji- I noticed by the way, you've been tweeting a lot less. I'm guessing that's the book has been taking most of your time. Is that right, biology? Yeah, yeah.
1: I'll, I'll I'll get back to it soon. I just basically, uh, you know, it's it's sort of like you know merging back onto the freeway. You know, you're like, okay,
0: you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure uh, your anti New York Times war will, will continue unabated. And you, and you will reign triumphant. Uh, post, you, post, post New York Times. Like, post like, New York Times. Right? Oh, post. Are, here's why. Are you, are you anti-Pravda? No, you're post-Pravda, right? <laughs> um. Okay. Yeah. A lot of things are post these days. Post-liberal, post-New York Times. Okay. Well, thank you, Balaji. And thanks everyone for coming. It was a pretty good turnout tonight. Um, and as usual, I'll post this as like a shareable podcast uh, tonight or tomorrow morning at the latest. And okay. um, right. by the way, we've got Dryden Brown of, of Praxis, I think next week or the following week. And so we'll we'll keep on harping on the network state in the in the coming weeks for those who who tune in regularly. Um awesome. thanks everyone for coming. Thanks, Apology. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye.